Well, just by a show of hands, I'm curious how many of you in here, and you can respond online where you are too, how many of you here would say that you tend to move towards the cautious side? In other words, you're going to be careful, you're going to evaluate what you do before you do it. If you're a little more safety or caution-minded, raise your hand. Okay. How many of you here would say you are risk takers? In fact, you don't even think of it as risk, you think of it as life. And so whatever comes about, you want to take a shot at. Okay, and just like the other services, we have more, uh, more people who are a little more tempered than people who are uh, adventurous. I almost said reckless, but that would be very telling, wouldn't it, if I viewed it? Did you ever have that, like someone offers to go skydiving, and you go, oh, I can't wait, or someone looks at you and goes, you will never do that. We have a family, that's a bad idea. You know, there's kind of this danger versus fun, right? That's what we live in is how we perceive it. In fact, I'm curious about this. Getting into the water, how many of you are toe dippers? You have to find out what the water's like first. And I understand it because we live in Michigan and we have no point in time where we actually know what the temperature will be. So there is some wisdom to checking first. But the idea of kind of dipping in the water first is saying, I have to make sure that it's a temperature I like in a circumstance I like before I go further, right? And then even if we move further and further, there are certain times as it reaches certain heights, it affects us differently too. And we're a little cautious about that and how it goes as it gets deeper and deeper, we kind of want to evaluate that. How far will I go into this water? What does it mean? Well, there's an opposite disposition too. It's what we like to call the cannonball disposition. Now, cannonball is just sheer fun, isn't it? I mean, you don't think about what's the water like. You just think, I have got to get in. I can't wait to jump in and see what this is about. You're not thinking about temperature. In fact, you might just be thinking about who's around and who you can mess with because that's part of the fun of it too. True? And so as we enter this series, as we talk about everybody always, very simply, we're trying to learn what this actually means to love our neighbors. That's what we're trying to do over these five weeks. Now, we'll be teaching it on Sunday, and then Bob Goff, in addition to writing this book called Everybody Always, has an actual group study. And so if you're not in a group, I'll be encouraging you before the end of the day to jump in because we'll take it further in group life, what we introduce in the service for this week and for each week as we're studying together. But I want you to consider it this way. Years ago, when we got clarity, again, kind of revisioned for the church, we said we were to be radically loving. We believe God gave us this calling to be radically loving. Every one of us loves the idea of being radically loving until it's asked of us. Right? Don't we say, I'll be radically loving unless or if... There's, there's kind of limits we put on it. And I want you to consider limits this way. It's kind of like toe dipping. What are the rules for love before I'll step in and actually reach out? And what I hope over this five weeks is we move from this cautious movement to full-on childlike diving in. That we will begin to perceive and experience radical love in such a way that we want to jump in to every opportunity we have. And with that in mind, we're going to begin today looking at an interaction Jesus has with a Jewish leader, with an expert in the law. The Jewish leader comes up to Jesus. This is in Luke's gospel, Luke's account of Jesus' life. And he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus, as a good rabbi does, he rather than tells him, says, well, what's written in the law? What does it mean? What is kind of this about? How do you read it? And then this expert responds and gives Jesus his answer. Well, it says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, 
and to love your neighbor as yourself. These are literally two different verses in the Hebrew scripture that are pulled together. And in Jesus' day, many would have seen this as what it meant. Now, it's interesting because from there, Jesus responds. You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, Jesus knows there's something behind it. There's more than just a question. In fact, it tells us that this guy wants to justify himself, so he's going to ask Jesus another question. And this is the question he asks. Who's my neighbor? In other words, who is it that I'm supposed to love? Love your neighbor as yourself. So he's asking for clarification. He thinks he's going to trip Jesus up with it. Now, in case you don't know, Jesus could have gone back to what it says in the Bible, what it teaches of in the Old Testament scriptures. Because there are two things in this very passage that it says, love your neighbor, that he could go to. In fact, if you go back to Leviticus, he could say this. Well, it, what does it say? It says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbors as yourself. I am the Lord. So he could have stopped and said, listen, it's about loving people, the people around you, the people that are like you. That's what you're supposed to do. And when you have frustration or hurt or pain, you still love them. Seems like a simple answer he could give. He could take it a step further. He could describe what it says a little bit later in the same passage in Leviticus. He says, the foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. He now loops them right in to this whole idea of the neighbor. For you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. In other words, he could say, listen, the people who are born here and are part of you, you need to love them. They're your neighbor. And then the people who end up here out of duty and obligation, out of some kind of alienation, you're to love them too. That's what he could say and still leave it at that. He could have clarified, but he doesn't. What Jesus does instead is he tells a story. He tells an interesting story, which is often how he teaches. And I'm going to read the story to you in just a minute. But I just want you to know, when he tells a story, it's about a man who's going from Jerusalem to Jericho. This is the actual route from Jerusalem to Jericho. It would have been traveled in antiquity. As you can see it, it's winding around. It heads over here. It goes all through the valley. In case you don't realize, there's lots of nooks and crannies and places to hide. It is actually considered a dangerous path to go alone. Because someone could hide anywhere at any time. So you're very vulnerable when you take this path. And this is the story as he tells it. And I'm going to say this before I read it to you. We always believe the Spirit wants to speak to you. So there's clearly what we hope we understand and some central understandings of the passage. But also, God may highlight something. You might just be listening and go, oh, that really stuck out to me or this grabbed me. We believe often that's the Holy Spirit. So as I read it, I have intention but I want you to know too, the Holy Spirit may prompt you. You don't have to force it. I'm not asking you to try and figure it out. I'm just asking you to be attentive. And let's see what God might say as Jesus tells the story. Remember, it's love God and love your neighbor. And the man says, who is my neighbor? And this is how Jesus explains it to him. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away and left him half Dead. Now, in the Jewish culture, that matters. We'll come back to it. A priest happened to be going down the road, the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side, stayed clear of him. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. 
he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, that's a significant amount of money, and gave it to the innkeeper to look after him, he said. When I return, I'll reimburse you for anything else you may have. And then Jesus asked the question, which of these three was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus gives a very simple statement, go and do likewise. Now, if you've been around church for any years, you might even think this is a familiar passage. And often what happens when we, we believe we've learned something is we kind of go, I know this, move on. And, and so I'm, I'm hoping if you're around that, that God might say something new to you today or fresh or even help you understand it more deeply. And if it's new to you, don't feel badly about it because we're all learning all the time. It's not as if there's those of us who know and those of us who don't. It is a constant process of transformation and growth. And make no mistake, every passage is fresh over and over and over again. So what we want to look at, remember the question, who's my neighbor? And Jesus, rather than answering, explains who is neighborly. But there are three main characters in this. So the priest is the first one. In case you do not know, there are laws that these priests are to follow. And one of them in the Jewish set of laws, as we get into what are called the Levitical laws, is that when someone is either dead or near dead, you're not to go near them because it can infect you. In other words, you put yourself in danger. You become unclean. So the priest understood, I'm coming by someone who's half dead. I don't know if they're dead or not, but I better steer clear because this could violate my rituals and way of living. In other words, it's dangerous for me. I'm going to go around them. The Levite does the very same thing. In fact, he's our second one. And make no mistake, these are two people specifically that are highly religious and held in high regard. And rather than think of religious figures, think of people you hold in high esteem as deep Christ followers. And it's as if Jesus used those examples. But it's when we come to the third that is quite scandalous. The Samaritans to the Jews are arch enemies. They're considered poison. Think in your own life of people that you have disdain for or groups that you do. And for good or bad, we all do. And there's shallow ones that we have. For example, as our worship team was getting ready today, we actually had one of the people tease the other one because one was a Michigan State fan and one was a Michigan fan. And you'd literally think, can they even play on the same team? Can they even be on the team? They act like, oh, we can't even like each other. We like different teams. Now that's silly, right? That's what we would say. But the reality is, don't we have other groups that we do this to? In our growing polarized culture, some of us out there think our arch enemies are people who hold a different political view, or our arch enemies are people who look different enough, or, or for many of us in the Christian church, we tend to look at people that believe other things that we don't believe believe the truth, and we look at them as enemies. Now, here's the crazy part. Jesus never describes who our neighbor is, but his hero is the most poisonous arch enemy of the Jew. In other words, who he puts in the role of the one that's doing the right thing is a person that none of them would have agreed was dead. In the church today, in our training today, we get so concerned about people not agreeing with us in how we think or believe that we would tend to put people outside as ever being a hero. And yet Jesus would really, I mean, he has a lot of questions to answer with church and all this over history because we tend to draw these lines much more. Make no mistake, he's not saying the Samaritans get it right. In fact, in John chapter 4, he interacts with a Samaritan woman and he says, you worship who you do not know. 
and we worship who God really is. He's not making a distinction of right thinking, but he's saying someone you think of as your enemy, guess what? They're the hero, and they actually could be the person living this thing out well. It just messes with them. And it messes with us today, doesn't it? I mean, this is a hard message in terms of, I think, where we live today because we're so polarized and draw so many distinctions about who is love-worthy and who is not. And yet Jesus' way of speaking of this, after he tells this whole story, hero, hero, enemy, and yet it's failure, failure, hero. I mean, what a mind-blowing experience to hear this teaching. What a mess to this expert of the law who was looking for a way for Jesus to draw some lines around his neighbor so it could only be certain people and he didn't have to love others. And not only does he mess with that, he messes with who the hero is in it. I mean, that, that wrecks me. Then he goes on, which of these do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert law gets it, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus' only answer is go and do likewise. It's not anything about how you're to think. He just says, you go and live this way. In other words, there's something more for you to do than simply think about who you love and how you love. Jump in. I mean, that's what I want you to get a picture of right now. I read this passage, and it often feels like obligation. You know what? Of course I'm going to walk around. My life's busy. It's difficult. It's hard. I mean, how many of us feel overwhelmed by all that we have going on? Think about the fact that when we get to our homes, for those of us who have uh, dwellings with garages, we basically drive in, we push the button, we close it, and we go inside. Do we even know who our neighbors are by us, let alone anywhere else? And I want you to consider this because it's not like I'm telling you to smack you over the head, you need to love people better. I think the motive behind this is excitement, not obligation. I think we read this passage and we hear, oh, well, the guy who felt like, you know, there's a guy hurt, I better help him. It says he took pity on him. What it means is he had compassion. He looked and he saw who the person was and his heart wanted to jump in. It was a desire for him. Think about this in our own lives. You're a student in a school. You get into the lunch line, you get in through lunch, you walk to the table you always go to, and you walk past a kid sitting at a table by himself. We don't want to go there out of obligation. We want to go there because God's love compels us. That there's something exciting about jumping in, not, oh, here's another thing for me to do. In the study we're going to do, uh, like I said, we study the passage on a Sunday. For those of you who are in groups, and if you're not, I'll encourage you at the end of the day to sign up. But Bob Goff is going to lead uh, through a video series. Each week he shares a story that compels us. And one of the things I love about hearing Bob talk is you don't hear it as if to say, you need to be more loving to people. What you hear is, there is so much life out there. Don't you want to be more loving to people? And so I want to just give you a little picture of it. This is Bob in the first session, just a little snippet. He's talking about his neighbor, neighbor Carol, and there's much more than I'm going to share it right now, but he tells a little bit about their journey and listen to his enthusiasm and excitement and how she connects to their family. Take a look. And Carol came along. And Carol was a widow, and, and James uh, in the book talks about widows and orphans and how we're supposed to treat them. So we gave her a big group hug and we said, Carol, you're our neighbor. And Carol moved in and lived there for the next 22 years. 
Carol became a famous family member, not just a family friend. As a matter of fact, our son and daughter-in-law got married in our backyard. And in the front row, there was a couple seats and one was for Carol. When the kids were growing up, they used to run across the street to Carol's house. They'd tell her stories about how they would throw balls in the hall at each other. And they coined the phrase hall ball for this game they would play. They told her about how my other son got married to a life-size Barbie with my daughter officiating. <laughs> they even told her about how my other son lost a frog in the living room. And every time when they tell Carol these stories, she'd put her hands over her mouth and like act like it was the first time they told her, even though it was the 20th time. She'd ask him again, tell me about the frog that got away. And the whole time she would fill them with mountains of cookies. And we have a parade. We have this beautiful tradition on our block because we think this idea of loving your neighbors means you need to know them so that you can love them. So we started throwing a parade. We've had this parade for 22 years. It's been terrific. And Carol was the queen one year. You guys, it's great. When she goes to the grocery store, people bow to her and call her your majesty. She, it'll take her 45 minutes just to fill her tank up with gas. Everybody's interrupting her saying like, let me do that for you. It's really just beautiful. And I think there's something about loving our neighbors that was like woven into the DNA. I know it's woven into our faith. It was so important that Jesus said, that's where we'd start, not where would we'd end. I love that statement about loving your neighbor. That's where we start, not where we end. I hope you even perceive the infectiousness of his excitement. When they started that parade 20 some years ago, uh, only a few people came, it became a much larger thing. I love the statement, you know what? We gotta know our neighbors so we can love our neighbors. It's this incredible jump in, full on, the waters of relationship are wonderful. And that's the picture he gives us that I think Jesus is giving in this story. It's not about obligation, it's about passion and excitement and opportunity. One person saw it and many of them looked and said, but you don't understand how busy my life is. You don't understand the limits I have. That's not the kind of person God's calling me to reach out to, not for me. And Jesus is shaking that up and I think we need to be shaken up. I mean, picture what this is like, what it really could be like if we began to do that, and make no mistake, you have lots of places where you have neighbors. You actually have neighbors, most of you, I'm assuming. You don't live on some extended plot of land, although maybe you do, but for most of us, we don't. But you can't look and go, well, my neighbor, man, his dog comes and does things in my yard, not gonna love that dude. That's not the option. You don't get to look and say, but you don't understand, they don't even keep their yard up. That's what people said about me, and they probably didn't wanna be my neighbor, but I mean, you start putting things out I remember we did a study some years ago about, about loving our neighbors. And there was a particular story that was told about a woman that didn't keep her yard well and all the neighbors were becoming upset about it and they were ready to kind of have it out with her for how she was making the neighborhood look bad. And someone had the wherewithal to go and talk to her and discover more and they found out how overwhelmed she was, how much she was dealing with as a single parent, how her circumstances were difficult. And they immediately turned from being mad at her to helping her relationship was born out of it and new life and love were born out of it. I mean, just to give you a picture, 
Think of how many of us are in the phases right now where your kids are deeply involved in activities, sometimes over-involved, but wherever they are, you are missing a chance. You're sitting next to people on a stand and not realizing, did you know they're your neighbor at this moment? That's who you're next to. And you're going, wait, wait, you don't understand. The people I sit next to you, they're, they're on the kids all the time. They're actually complaining about my kid, who's awesome, by the way. And you're thinking, I don't want to reach out to them. Think about it in your offices, those of you who work in an office space and there's a cubicle next to you or an office next door or down the hallway in the hospital that you serve at or in the school, the classroom next to you or the marketplace or the line that you work on, wherever it is, whoever's next to you, that's your neighbor. And we already mentioned it for students. I mean, man, if we could charge up our students to start loving the kids that feel most forgotten and forsaken, can you imagine how transforming that would be somewhere? Anywhere that they do it. When I think about neighbors, one person comes to mind because he built his whole life and career about, won't you be my neighbor? You know who I'm talking about? Can you say Fred Rogers? I like the way you say that. It's good. (laughs) Who's my neighbor? I love you, neighbor. He's an interesting person. Uh, Jane and I watched the documentary on his life, and I found myself so overwhelmed and compelled by the beauty of his vision to help kids know how special and loved they were, and then to know how to even address issues that were complicated in our culture in a loving your neighbor way. In uh, 2011, I believe it was, he spoke at, uh, at a graduation um, commencement address at Mil- Middlebury College. And this is just one statement he made, but I find it profound as to how we might look at those around us rather than obligation. And he said this, When we look for what's best in the person we happen to be with at the moment, we are doing what God does. So in appreciating our neighbor, we're participating in something truly sacred. Oh, I'm going to read it again. It's that good. When we look for what's best in the person we happen to be with at the moment, we're doing what God does. So in appreciating our neighbor, we're participating in something truly sacred. In other words, do you realize we discover something of who God is when we see people the way he does? When we actually reach out and start loving them with his heart, we dive in. It is a full-on cannonball into the waters of loving friendship in your neighbor. I want you to get a picture not for obligation, but a picture for life that is life. And make no mistake, all the boundaries we set that tell us not me, not today, not in this circumstance, are rules we put in to protect ourselves from what we risk. But it's at the expense of what's true life. As we go into this series, I have found myself kind of reignited thinking about this idea that God called us to be radically loving and growing together in Christ. Because in a sense, these five weeks we're going to spend, we're going to keep discovering what's radical love look like, what's radical love look like, what's radical love look like, in all sorts of different settings. Next week, it's going to be looking particularly at people who've really had rough shots in life and have been difficult. This is the deal. Loving our neighbors is not a toe-dipping way of life. It is not that we proceed with caution and care for fear of what it means. It is not out of fear or obligation. What it is, is full-on cannonball love. Full-on cannonball love. I, I want you to think about it this way. 
God doesn't call us to be childish, but he calls us to be childlike. You know that, don't you? Can any of you remember the excitement of a kid as a kid on a hot summer day jumping into a great pool? And the excitement of using a cannonball just to destroy the water for everyone else and the mess it causes and the joy of that. Can you remember that? That's what God's inviting us to remember. And and make no mistake, the reason we tend to struggle with this is our own not realizing the radical love Christ has for us. Because the more we understand it, it's the same water, by the way. We jump in to receive and we jump in to give. I want to read this passage to you one more time, the story. But I don't want you to hear it as a lens of obligation or a lens of judgment. I want you to hear it as the God of the universe telling you what a joyful thing this can be in me for you and how he wants to mess with all the ways we look at each other and judge each other. Hear these words again. Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead, unclean, ceremonially a problem. By the way, I I forgot to mention this, and I want to one more time. As we get to the law, there's one thing that always trumps any law in the Levitical laws, and it's this, life. In other words, if life would have to be saved to break a law, break the law, because life matters more than the rules. And they had missed the very heart of it, which is God loves people so much. He put the rules to help us, not to hinder us. So just keep that in mind, how God cares so deeply about life. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him. He's half dead. The priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side, not going in that water. So too the Levite, when he came and saw him, passed by on the other side, not going in that water. But the Samaritan... The person you think least likely and most hateful as he traveled came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He felt compassion. His heart was broken. And you want to see how he went in the water. He didn't just go there. He bandaged and bandaged him, bandaged the wounds, poured oil and wine on them. He put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out money to provide for the the means for all this. Looking at, look after him, he said to the innkeeper. And when, he re- when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. In other words, he dove in. He was full throttle cannonball in love. Not, I'm just gonna help him in this moment. What can I do to get him on his feet? What can I do to keep caring for him? You get the picture, don't you? That's radical love. Jesus finishes, which of the three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? The expert replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. I believe firmly that over the course of the next few days, God's going to give you cannonball opportunities. And I hope what you hear is, oh, you need to go help. Not that. Better do it. You're going to hear, jump in. Jump in. Man, what's going to happen is so much better than what you're living in right now. And it's exactly what I do for you. Jump in. You're going to have life that you can't even imagine. Jump in. Don't settle for the safety. Jump in. And so I want you, just as we go today, I'm going to pray for us, but and we're going to celebrate some things too, but I want to remind you as you do go out, man, start asking the Spirit, where are you giving me cannonball love options? And not live the way we have been.
I want to encourage you too, if you're not in a group, you can sign up at the kiosk right in the center of the lobby there. Just put your name on one of the cards there and we have a team working on trying to get people all settled and in the groups. It's five weeks, that's what we're doing for this study. It's not a long-term commitment, but a great one that will enhance what we're doing on Sundays. If you can't do that, we still want you to engage every week. The study itself will be good on Sundays. This will just enhance it. I want to pray for us and then we're going to respond celebrating the sacrament that in essence is Jesus' radical love that we dive into. What we celebrate in the sacrament is his love for us that we jump in and receive. So let me pray. Lord, I thank you for each person here. I thank you that you have made them and love them and want them to receive your radical love. And in the same way, God, I ask that they would begin to see how you are inviting them to participate in loving others. Lord, I pray not just now, but you'll remind them as they go forward that they would not get to a circumstance and go, wait, I better go to the other side, keep my toe out of the water, but they would full on jump in and give love to those in need around them and see every relationship as someone who's made in your image and sacredly join you in how they love that person. God, lead us to actually become who you made us to be, this radically loving group that grow together in you. Lord, help us to that end in your name. Amen.